we're on a mission to help women get healthy for good. Join me each week for a new episode that'll help you sustain healthy habits and nourish your body so you can flourish in life. When it comes to nutrition, does it feel like you know what to do, you're just not doing it? Or maybe you find yourself stuck in this annoying all or nothing cycle. If it sounds like I'm reading your diary, well, that was my diary for a while too. And it's also the story of the thousands of women I've personally coached. That's why I created Flourish, the nutrition and body image support app made for women. If you recognize that diets don't work, but just not dieting isn't helping you feel your best either, download Flourish today. Your first live session with one of our credentialed nutrition and psychology experts is totally free, no credit card required. From there, you'll continue your journey with personalized accountability and support so that once you graduate from Flourish, you'll never need another nutrition program again. So head to the show notes and download Flourish for iOS or Android today. You're listening to the Nutritional Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Claire Siegel, registered dietitian, founder of Nutritional Freedom, and total stationary nerd who's sharing episodes each week to help you ditch diets and get healthy for good. We'll dive into what really works when it comes to creating sustainable nutrition and health habits, ways to improve your body image, and how all of this helps you live a life that's in alignment with your values. Because that's what really matters, right? Let's dive in. Today's episode is brought to you by our free mini course, The Three Keys to Never Diet Again. Tell me this, have you ever finished up a podcast episode thinking, heck yes, I just learned so much, that makes so much sense, it's all clicking, I'm going to do all the things I just learned. And then you turn your car off, walk into the grocery store and forget that the podcast episode ever even happened? Yeah, same. (laughs) Here's the thing. I really don't want you to do that with what you're learning here on the Nutritional Freedom Podcast. This information is so incredibly important and can literally change your life. So I created a free mini course, three video lessons and a workbook to help you turn inspiration into action. You can get started today with the three keys to never diet again through the link in the show notes below. Welcome back to the Nutritional Freedom Podcast. If you heard last week's announcement, then you'll be just as excited about this week's episode as I am. I'm so honored to be joined by Riley Blanks for the first ever installment of the Body of Work series. When I was dreaming up this podcast series and my list of dream guests, Riley was high on the list because she and I have had such unique and intimate conversations around what it's like to be in a woman's body. And that has often, and those conversations have often happened when she is behind the camera and I am in front of the camera as the subject. So it was really amazing to kind of turn the tables a little bit and and get to interview her. So I hope you enjoy listening in to this conversation between Riley and I. If you want to give her a follow, check out all of her links down below. And with that, let's get started. So Riley, welcome to the Nutritional Freedom Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love your movement and all that you stand for. And I'm so grateful for all of the free content you provide. You're such <laughs> a powerful resource. And um, yeah, we're just all so lucky, lucky to bear witness. So oh, well, thank yeah. you. 
I appreciate that. Well, I would love for you to just start us off in case anyone listening doesn't know who you are, doesn't listen to your podcast, um, which they need to go do. Um, Give us a little bit of an introduction to you, who you are, and how do you show up in the world? Yeah, so I am a multimedia storyteller and socially conscious artist. Um, I express myself in as many modalities as possible. Um, I consider myself a communication artist before anything else for that reason. Um, Though I have a photography business um, and it's, you know, essentially sits at the center of a lot of the things I do. Um, It's really backed by so much more than photography. Um, You know, I think in many ways um, I function as an identity advocate. And so that comes out, you know, in in different ways. Um, And and some of this is kind of new, but I, I was talking to somebody yesterday about how um, you know, to navigate being a business owner and an artist. And, and I told her, I think in large part, it's finding language that resonates. Mm. Um, and that feels kind of poetic, you know, on an abstract level. So yeah, I have a business. It's a photography movement and self-actualization tool. It's called Woke Beauty. Um, it's all about celebrating the inherent resilience and beauty in women. And that comes out in uh, therapeutic photography, you know, storytelling, educating, uh, education and branding support, as well as um, community advocacy and support. Really, like pre-pandemic, I was looking to create a colorful atmosphere in Austin that made people feel represented and seen. And it was something that I had a hard time finding myself when I first moved here. So it's it's given me great joy and pride uh, to do that. And then, you know, of course, after COVID hit, it was kind of hard to gather, right? So I really strove to bring that online. And that's what the podcast is. I, I seek to um, really like uplift and kind of dive deep into the stories of female visionaries. And um, that's been such a, an amazing process. I've learned so much just in, in hearing their stories. And I think that's really the power of storytelling. It kind of functions as a vehicle to get to like a deeper meaning. Um, I actually just did a recap of the past like 22 episodes and it was so neat to, to sift back and to highlight you know, life lessons that I found resonated and to kind of share them all in one capsule. So that's been a really beautiful journey. And yeah, there's so much to say, but uh, I think I'll stop there. I think that's that's a little preview, a little taste. I love it. I love it. Gosh, we've had so much fun. I love how you, what did you call it? You said you're an identity activist. Identity. Advocate. Advocate. They're interchangeable. (laughs) I love it. Well, I think that's so true. And I feel like that for those of you uh, listening at home, you know, Riley and I were having like monthly photo shoots and I would always save like my, what I felt like were kind of like my riskiest photo shoots, like my first makeup free photo shoot I did with Riley, uh, a photo shoot where I smashed my scale. And I just always knew that like Riley would be super down to like play and experiment and learn more of like the stories behind some of these ideas. Um, and I think that's what's, you know, in some parts led to to so many of our like very interesting conversations of what it's like to be a, a woman in a body. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've loved documenting those little moments in your life. And I, I think what's really cool about them is that they kind of expand, you know, across a, a really full horizon, you mm-hmm. know, and they represent so much more than like the act of whatever it is that you're doing, you know, so totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's always, you know, I'm thinking like in one 
in one part of my brain, I'm thinking like business and marketing and what is the, you know, blog post that we're going to associate with this image. And then also for me, it's like an act of, I don't know, like vulnerability for sure, like exposure, testing my own waters of like confidence, like having, you know, I remember there were like certain, um, shoots we took intentionally. I was like, hey, can you take a photo of this part of my body that I'm actually very insecure about? And it was such a cool thing just to like shine a light on that and even share it to the share it to you, share it to the internet. And like the world didn't end because you saw this like fold of back fat that I've historically felt, you know, all the things about. So I just I'm so grateful for you for creating uh, you know, it's so important. You know, I've, I've shot with a number of people and there is a certain level of like trust and safety that I think you I don't know that you need to have with a photographer, but it certainly enhances the experience. And so I think you do such a beautiful job of of helping your subjects feel at home. Thank you. Of course. It is so important. Very important. And you you know, because you're on often on both sides of, of the camera. And so again, as I was thinking about who I wanted on this podcast, I was like, definitely Riley. And I'm so interested to hear about sort of what I don't know, chapter of of your story that you want to share when it comes to this subject of body of work. So we kind of um, talked beforehand and you talked about your experience of growing up as an athlete. So I would love for, for you to share with our audience here your body story. So what it was like for you to grow up as the child of an athlete to then become an athlete yourself. And then, you know, what it was like kind of phasing out of that, that process in your life. And what were some of like the highs and lows and and takeaways along that ongoing journey? Yeah. So, um, it's complex as many of our journeys are, um, you know, to go from being an athlete where your body literally functions as a tool um, to then stepping into a world that's, you know, that makes you an ex-athlete, as I like to call it, um, where your body is just carrying you as more of a function, you know, to, to, you know, to perform in a way that is, sure, high level, you know, like that's the hope since we do live in our bodies. But in a way that's more soothing, that's more easygoing, that's more seamless. It's not like I have to train to hit a tennis ball. You know what I mean? Mm. I just have to function to walk to the grocery store and to be a good partner and, you know, to feel good, to not like wake up with a migraine. You know what I mean? So yeah, it feels more proactive and preventative now, whereas before it was like you are literally preparing yourself for like difficulty and strain and you know what I mean? And so that dichotomy is, it's tough to navigate for sure. Um, I grew up, uh, I was basically, well, I wasn't basically, I was actually born the year my dad was drafted into the NBA. Um, And so my life began with sport just by you know, natural occurrence. Um, and then I picked up a racket when I was five. Um, wow. on a, I always say like on a red clay court in Nicosia, Cyprus. Um, <laughs> it has a ring to it, but it's actually very true. Um, and tennis became the focal part of, of my identity. It, it was everything. You know, when I would talk to my parents' friends, it was like, how's tennis doing? How's tennis going? It was like the first question they asked. And as I became a teenager, I'd be like, well, what about me? Like, what about how I'm doing? Mm. You know, but I couldn't really separate the two. We became so enmeshed. Um, and it was the same with my body. I actually went through um, 
four injuries in a year when I was like 12, 12 to 13. I had a really rough year and it was tough because I had actually just left traditional school. I went into homeschooling. I moved to Florida and trained, you know, to be a professional athlete, um, you know, six, seven hours a day. It was, it was a lot. Um, yeah. So, you know, my, it was all stress fractures. So keyword stress, right. My body was just under so much pressure. And, you know, I went from waking up at 4am to train before school to like that being the, the main part of my day. And so, you know, I think like in many ways, then I placed value on my body. Like my worth became attached to the performance of my body. And so my, my body didn't perform at like this peak, you know, level, then I wasn't good enough. You know, um, I couldn't play, right. I couldn't do the one thing that I was meant to do. The one thing that was like the focal part of my identity. Right. So, you know, that translated into many different spheres. I mean, I had a crazy body fat percentage as a teenager. I was something like 11 or 12%, which for a girl is, is quite low. You know, I, I couldn't get periods, you know. Um, I went through a lot and it, a lot of it became attached to my emotional state. Um, and so, you know, now I can analyze that as an adult, but at the time when you're so young, um, and you're in it, it's, it's, it's hard to step out and to see it, you know? And so, yeah, as I've, you know, gone through my adulthood, I'm 29. So whatever that means. (laughs) Um, I'm like, are we young or old? I'm not sure. I know it's all relative, (laughs) right? I, I don't know. I think it's day to day, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's been really hard. I actually, I gained 30 pounds, um, when I was 18. And that was like detrimental to me Mm. myself. Like it was just like, what has happened? Like I'm, I'm not me anymore, you know? Um, and I was still, I was, so I ended up going to college. I played, um, at UVA, which is, you know, D one top 10, you know, really intense, uh, regiment. And so, you know, I was injured most of the year again. So, you know, the the level of like beating myself up for not being good enough, um, it was high. And and when I say that, I feel like it sounds like, um, you know, victim mentality, you know, which as a, a prior athlete and as a high performer, I'm not with that, you know, like that doesn't work for me, but it was the truth. And, you know, it. I've recently learned like, labeling eating disorder is is a bit treacherous because then again it becomes an, a label you know that you embody i prefer to call it disordered eating um and so i definitely um went through some of that in my early 20s um just not understanding how to eat in a way that nourished me in a world that wasn't necessarily athletic um, uh-huh. I, I couldn't like find, I, I couldn't figure out that sort of formula. And also in my defense, I lived in a dormitory that literally faced the cafeteria. So, um, emotional eating definitely became a thing. So, yeah. So all of that to say, there's so much, there's so much, so much. right? 29 years on earth. Where do we begin? Uh, here I am now. And, you know, admittedly, I've gone through a lot of different diets and trying to figure out what works. And I've landed in a spot now where, you know, what's most important is that I eat intuitively and that I move intuitively and that 
I really listen to my body and I analyze my life and Mm -hmm. I do what's best for me. And that doesn't make me selfish. It just makes me in tune with myself, you know? And I, I think at the end of the day, that's what's most important. But detaching from that prior phase of life has been really hard to do. Totally, totally. That's kind of what I was thinking as you were sharing your story, you know, going through that period of, you know, intense performance and and injury and then, you know, gaining the weight, thinking about how I would imagine and, and correct me if I'm wrong, like that's a very I guess disconnecting experience, right? Like looking a lot rather rather than turning inward and and looking at how you're feeling physically and mentally it's almost like this external thing of okay here's the number on the scale here's you know i don't know how i don't know what you do when you train for tennis but like how fast i'm running a mile or how many balls i'm hitting or whatever these sort of like performance metrics are but you can also you know and i just think that we are not taught to necessarily look inward and look at, hey, I'm not getting my period or, hey, I'm having, you know, these these mood swings or this like lack of, um, you know, emotional management that can be so instructive, right? Instead, we look at this, the external, right? The external signs and, and um, you know, symptoms that we're experiencing and, and try to chase solutions there rather than turning inward, which is what it sounds like you've done now. Yeah, that's, that's so well said. Um, I mean, I, I think in, in many ways, the you know, the health industry, it's a Band-Aid, you know, totally. and um, that's so dangerous because not only do you do you not get to the root of what's happening, but you don't empower people to discover the root of what's happening. Yeah. Um, and per Angela Davis, grasping at the root, that's, that's what we got to <laughs> do, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, all that to say, like, I had and I have incredible parents who, you know, did their best to nurture an environment that could hold me. And in many ways, they were still figuring it out themselves. You know, my my parents were super young when they had me. And they both come from, uh, you know, pretty high performance, you know, spaces. Um, my mom was an aerobics teacher. It's actually how she met my dad. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, and so their view of themselves is like, you got to like, rise up and like you got to reach very high expectations. And so just by nature, you know, I I embodied that and still do, you know. Um, So there's a delicate balance. I mean, I think it is important to take responsibility over your place in the world, you know, to take Mm -hmm. responsibility over the space that you occupy, um, literally and abstractly. But I think it's also important to to give yourself grace. A hundred percent. And like those kind of high performance standards, have also served you in so many ways, right? I think it's so easy to be so black and white. Like, you know, we have clients in our programs and sometimes we joke about how, you know, man, my mom said this and it really like screwed me up. But there's often a flip side to the coin and whether it's, you know, ways that you've excelled because of some of the things that your parents, you know, said or did or embodied. And then of course, yeah, maybe there are some ways where it didn't necessarily serve you. But what you can recognize is like, hey, my parents were trying to do the best that they could at the time with the information they had. And they were also working through like their own stuff. And I think that's, you know, something that we talk a lot about in our programs is you can recognize the ways in which your upbringing, you know, may have have hurt you or to some extent even like traumatized you. We all have those those experiences as well. But oftentimes it says more about, you know, what our, our parents or friends or teachers or whomever it is, what they were going through and less about us. And so to like be able to recognize that pain and also have a very objective understanding of like the source of it and where it comes from and its real meaning is I think there's just a lot of room for like growth and maturity there. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's not so myopic, you know, and I think, you know, to that end, it's so important to be adaptable and flexible, not just, you know, based on your own surroundings in the world, but also based on like, however you're feeling that day. You know what I mean? Totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We do, we do some assessments in our programs and our clients will often tell me like, if I took this assessment, like yesterday, my responses might look different. If I take it next week, things might look different. And that's so true, especially as women, especially, I mean, if you just think about like our hormonal cycles, like every 30, you know, things are looking different day to day on like this, you know, 28 month cycle. Like, yeah, it's, we wake up in new bodies, like almost every day, it feels like, and certainly new brains in many cases, just depending, depending on the day. Um, that's, that's amazing. So I'm curious because you also spend, I mean, like I said, you've had like so many different like life experiences and like career paths and like so many different things. So I would love to talk a little bit more about being in front of the camera and how you feel that your experience as an athlete, does that translate into your work, you know, in, in terms of modeling? And and if so, how? <laughs> Totally. <laughs> I mean, I I do think in in some ways I was born a performer, you know. Um, you know, it's always that that nature versus nurture. I think it's nature and nurture, right? Totally. Um I always loved a crowd. I would always play better when I had a crowd. Um, and I oftentimes perform better against opponents that were on paper better than me or who were older than me or who were men or, you know, one collegiate players or whatever, because there was always this desire to like rise to the occasion. Whereas if I played someone who was supposedly, right, whatever, whatever it means, not as good as me, Mm -hmm. then I had this great pressure to perform. You know, Mm -hmm. I had this great pressure to live up to what I was or live up to my potential. And so I like challenge. I like spaces that make me extremely uncomfortable. And I think in some ways, that's why I have the ability to navigate environments every environment, environments that are uncomfortable, be around people who have completely different ideologies than me. Um, You know, I grew up transnationally, right? I'm biracial. All of those things are components. But I also think on an individual level, I love being out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. In in weird ways, being out of my comfort zone is being in my comfort zone. And the fact is, you know, being on a tennis court with a crowd of 200 people is uncomfortable, even if it's comfortable, right? And being in front of a camera, no matter who you are, is weird. It's just an awkward, uncomfortable experience. Um, yeah. I mean, a, a camera is not a human. It's a it's um, a device that is literally documenting you in that moment, and you can't see yourself. You have no idea what's going on. You don't know what you don't know the framing. You don't know the angle. You just have to show up and mm-hmm. do your best and and hope for the best, right? Hope the photographer is paying homage to you. Hope the photographer recognizes his or her space as a duty and a responsibility to capture you fully. And most of the time, they're not there for that, right? So, um, you know, there, there's there's great comparison, and I think that's in part why um, both speak to me deeply. Mm-hmm. I feel that way about art too. In college, I got in this huge fight with a professor because I told him that football and ballet were, were really similar. And he was like, ballet is an art form. And I was like, have you ever seen a football player point their toe when they grabbed a ball? Yes, absolutely. Like, That's amazing. Do you know anything about individualism, which at the end of the day, like speaks largely to both spaces, you know, you, in order to be an incredible athlete, you have to find a very deep, you know, understanding of yourself 
Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be able to to sit alone with yourself, even if you play on a team. And you have to be creative. You have to do things that no one else has ever done before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no different than art or entrepreneurship. You know, you, you got to find a space that um, is, you know, unreachable for anyone else, right? So yeah, a lot of overlap. And I think that intersectionality is really interesting when it comes to my identity. Um, And I really look to explore that as sort of like a symbol and kind of like a tool for others as well, because I think we should all be doing that work always. Totally. I'm so curious what you said about being outside of your comfort zone. I'm like going to have to like replay this and like listen to it again. Do you think that I guess without without tennis, without your career as an athlete, you would have still had that kind of draw to the discomfort zone? Or do you think that being an athlete created that in you? I think I already had it and being mm-hmm. an athlete propelled it further mm-hmm. um, because I could have had it and then been in an environment that didn't foster it. Um, and then maybe it would have just sat stagnant or, you know, left my body completely. But not only was I, was I an athlete, I was born with a black mom and a black dad. And that in and of itself is a challenge, especially living in a world, not just a country, but a world because we've lived in, in many countries that doesn't always see that as a harmonious, mm-hmm. um, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, white mom and black dad. You said black mom, white. black dad. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's funny. Um, that's a, It's so funny because my mom was just here over the weekend and we call her Shanene sometimes because she like totally like falls into this role that's like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, and, you know, my my dad is the one who came up with that term. So it's, it's kind of funny that I said that. But yeah, she is very, very white. We love her. She tans beautifully, but she's white. She's from Santa Barbara, has one of the hippiest moms I've ever met in my life. Um, and we love her for that too. But yeah, that's tricky. And, and kind of going that way too, I was born with um, a nevi on my head, um, which is an, an enlarged mole. And it's, it's essentially precancerous. Um, mm. And so the first two years of my life, I actually endured surgery pretty, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly painful. I mean, it's your scalp, right? So, so yeah, I, I, basically had implants in my head until I was two so that they could stretch the skin and cut out the mole. So I looked like literally like the elephant man. And so my mom carried me around on her hip, you know, until I was two with people just staring. And she says now, like, I would have stared too. Like I I looked bizarre, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, especially in relativity to most cute babies, you know, I mean, I was still pretty cute. Right. But, but something was not right. You know, something was not healthy. Um, and so I feel like ever since I was born, I've been faced kind of with that um, tokenism, with that sort of like other. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to embrace it. And I think in part me embracing it is me owning it. And so like I like going into spaces and standing out because I want to stand out, you know, like wearing something super like eccentric and unconventional that like makes you stare because I made you stare, you know, or picking yeah. my out into my hair out into like a large fro that makes you stare because I did that. Like I styled my hair that way, you know? Yeah. Um, and so like, I know you would already stare, but I took it a step further. So now you're going to stare a little bit longer. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so I, I think it's, it's a lot of it has to do with owning it, you know, like, like just taking control over it and really determining that like, this is my identity. I was born with it. And I, I then entered into an environment that, that fostered it and that mm-hmm. cultivated it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's such a sense of like agency that I hear in your voice and autonomy. And, and I mean, comes back all the way full circle to like, not a victim mentality that like, yeah, I'm, I'm here and this is the world that we live in and this is the, the body that I'm in and this is the way that, that I look and I'm going to own my identity. And yeah, if you take notice, it's because I made it that way, which is pretty, I mean, that's a pretty like badass <laughs> um, thing to say. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm curious, do you ever feel like, I guess, how do you know if there, if there is a limit to this discomfort zone? Do you feel that? Do you feel like this week or this month or I don't know, this this year, um, maybe for sure, but like I've spent too much time in my discomfort zone. I need to like come back in. Does that does that happen? And what is that like for you? Yeah. So I can swim into a very deep abyss. And um I I just like I have that emotional capacity and I do think in some ways that's a skill. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also think it's a surrendering, you know? Um, and I also, I know how deep those waters are and how, how tricky it can get down there. And so I definitely need elements in my life that can bring me out of it, bring me up to the surface, you know? Being in a discomfort zone and kind of like perpetually putting myself in that space is definitely a way of swimming down into that dark abyss. And so, yeah, I, I need some, some light around me. And I find that in my partner. I find that in my dogs. I find that in my friends. I find that just by staring up at the sky. Um, And, you know, those are things I have to incorporate into my life daily. Um, Otherwise, uh, it can be a very slippery slope. It's funny that we're talking about this because I'm kind of into the Enneagram. I mean, I'm really into identity, right? So any any resource that can get me there, um, I'm all for it. And it's ironic that I'm saying identity yet again because I'm a four. And we are all about identity. And I mean, we're the the romanticists, we're the individualists, right? So it's it's all about like, you know, the greater scope of life and like what is the meaning? And if I'm insignificant, then I have failed myself and I have failed you. You know what I mean? Mm, totally. Um, and so so yeah, it's just funny because I was I was reading about it this morning and and now it's kind of entering into this conversation. But to answer your 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 question, yes, I cannot live in that discomfort all the time. Yeah. Otherwise I won't be my best self. Totally. I just won't, you know? Totally. And I think it's such an important thing for our, our listeners here. I'm such a fan of the the comfort zone discussion. I love thinking about like, how can you, first of all, recognizing your comfort zone, like, is it an, a place where you're actually comfortable? I think actually, especially for the women we work with, their comfort zone is something that they've totally like settled for in in many ways. It's just what's always been. And so actually encouraging them to get into the zone of like the growth zone, right? It's confusing calling it comfort and discomfort because oftentimes you're quite uncomfortable in your comfort zone. But to also recognize like you can spend too much time in like your growth zone. You can spend too much time in those situations in which you feel, you know, whether it's like a fish out of water or feel too vulnerable, like and to have those truly comforting things, whether it's, you know, a a certain space in your home or like a coffee shop or a person um, where you can find yourself like at home in your truest sense is, is so important. I think we all probably have different levels of like tolerance for that discomfort, but most of us probably have more tolerance for it than we think we do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that that kind of comparison can can be um, really detrimental to, to figuring that out and to mm-hmm. discovering that in yourself, um, because then you're not 
looking inward. You're just constantly looking outward. Um, something else I want to say to that is, is that, you know, it makes me think of taking care of yourself, right? And how like, Self-care has become this very active thing, especially online. Yeah. And I actually think for, for many of us, and especially for the performers of us, self-care is actually not active. It's mm. like doing nothing. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, taking a break and just sitting silently and yeah. slow, you know, slowing down. Um, I think, you know, that's something I've realized recently. Like before it was like, what can I do to take care of myself? And it's like, no, no, no you can do nothing, <laughs> you know, yes. like, please stop. <laughs> and so that is uncomfortable for me, right? I, it, it sounds ironic maybe to those who are, who are good at it. Um, but it's, it's not when you've had a to-do list your whole life, you know? Oh my gosh. And it will never go away. I had a, a very much like a no weekend. I just literally laid in bed and watched Away on Netflix, which is a really great show with Jennifer. No, not Jennifer Garner, yeah. Hillary Swank. And uh, anyway, so I watched that show and I felt eventually I was able to just like get into it. But the first episode, I was just anxious the whole time. Like I shouldn't be doing this. I have a, a to-do list 10 miles long. But yeah, that that weekend of self-care, it wasn't about like watercolor painting and journaling and reading books. It was literally just like lay up in bed, watch a show on Netflix and chill. And yeah. again, the world is not going to end. You're going to be okay. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. It was so good. <laughs> so I'm curious to kind of then take us a step further. So we went from your you know, career as an athlete to then transitioning into modeling. And, and maybe this is not exactly the right timeline, but then I want to hear more about how being in front of the camera translates into your work now behind the camera and, and photographing other women. Yeah, absolutely. So though modeling is something that I do, I'm careful to use the word as a description of what I do because um, it's highly misunderstood. For, for those of us who are more um, acting as agents, representation, um, you know, ambassadors, advocates, you know, I stand in front of the camera to tell a story, to carry a message, um, never to uh, just like plainly show something off, you know, although I used to do more of that and it was soul crushing. <laughs> um, and also I found that I couldn't trust those who were capturing me. My skin was edited lighter than it actually is. Um, you know, I was called certain things or I was like clearly the black girl that they needed. Mm. Um, and so now I mostly don't model. Like most of the inquiries I get, I don't do anymore because they're nowhere in line with woke beauty. They're nowhere in line with my ideology or the um, the terms that I do use to describe myself. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, but it's been an interesting journey. I started modeling because I fell into it. We were, we lived in Central America and we were coming back and one of my best friends is a fashion stylist in L.A., and she was on a TJ Maxx campaign and they were searching for a couple. And we were literally, we'd just gotten back and we were like, what is America? This is crazy. Like we were living in Nicaragua and Guatemala and like not really enjoying first world, you know, luxuries, right? Yeah. And so we were in Cleveland, which is where my, my partner Jack is from. And TJ Maxx was interested in us. They'd seen pictures. And so we jumped on like an, a Zoom interview. Maybe it was just Skype at the time. And... Then we happened to be going to Santa Barbara to visit my mom, and the next um, audition was in L.A. 
So they wanted to see us. We went and had the audition and they cast us. And we were in a national campaign. It was crazy. It was so like random. And that was when I was like, oh, I love this. This is fun. Totally. (laughs) Um, I love like, you know, telling my story. I love, you know, performing. Right. And so that was that was the beginning of me kind of diving into that world while continuing to do what I did for a a lot of my 20s, which was um, which was waitress. Um, And so the combination of I mean, that in and of itself is a is a you know, a way of performing too, right? Like you got to go up to a table, make them feel so good, true. you know, put in their order correctly, carry it in a certain way, dress up a certain way. You know, it's, it's, you're following pretty strict guidelines, especially in elevated spaces. And so woke beauty, like through all of that, I hit a, I hit a pretty low spot. I, I fell into depression and it was in part because, um, I'm private about my mental health, but, but I, I do struggle with my mental health, um, clinically. And so that was something that I discovered around the time that I also hit a point of what am I doing with my life? Like I, again, I'm not significant. I am Mm. not reaching my potential. I have so much more to offer than I'm actually giving the world. Um, this is all vapid and apathetic and dumb, you know? And so not to mention, I had this beautiful fine art degree that was just like sitting in my pocket. I was also freelancing. I was doing a thousand things, right? Which is what I, I can't help but do. Yeah. Um, and so I was doing freelance photography, which was everything. Anything that fell into my inbox, I would take um, because I was just so desperately seeking this path that I didn't even, it was like, I'm a visionary, right? But I couldn't envision what I wanted to envision because I had no idea what the vision was, right? Mm-hmm. So it was just like a blank imagination. And then, you know, in that, in the fall of 2017, which was a low, a low point of my life, I really dived into self-discovery. I dived into my past and I studied what it is that truly makes me tick. Because if I was going to find something that was photographic, it had to stand the test of time. Otherwise, I was going to quit everything and find a different industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a few months. I gave myself a goal date. It was like, if by this date, I do not have this figured out, I'm done, you know? And I discovered Woke Beauty. And it was in part me thinking about my thesis, my final thesis in college, which was called Stare. And it was a selection of portraits I'd taken of people very close to me. And what I did with those people is I sat down with them and I spent hours with them. You know, I'd be like, hey, I need three to four hours of your time. Let's make lunch. Let's go on a walk in a park. Like, let's have a conversation that makes you feel uplifted. And then afterwards, I'd love to spend like 30 minutes taking your picture. So the ratio was, you know, let's spend two to three hours hanging out and then let's take pictures for 30 minutes. And what I discovered in that process versus um, what I had been doing, which was photographing strangers, documenting people randomly, um, it was always portrait focused because I'm so obsessed with sociology and kind of like why our society is the way it is. But instead, I took this really slow time where I stared at somebody longer. And I found and described in my thesis that that was a transcendental moment in the photograph. Like you could tell in their expression that there was a sort of light and openness that was coming through that was not, um, it was completely intangible. You couldn't describe it with words. It was purely photographic. And I was so obsessed with that. And I abandoned it. 
until the fall of 2017. Um, oh. And so that combined with me thinking about my relationships with women. I, I have admittedly a lot of friends. I love I love people. I also hate them, but I love them. I love my <laughs> friends. Um, <laughs> I think women are incredible. I love my mom. And I found that with my mom and with my friends, but, but especially my mom who's endured a lot of trauma, I could get I could get deeper. I could reveal her beauty. I could tell her, you're beautiful. Like actually really, not physically, but really. And I'm not going to tell you that with words anymore because you don't get it. I'm going to show you through pictures. And so, you know, I ended up making her this book of, of pictures I'd taken her and I juxtaposed them with words that I'd written about her that were, you know, pretty poetic and it was like one of the most beautiful things to watch her sift through that book and see herself the way I saw her. And I was like, what if I do that for all women? Like, what if I create a process an experience that encourages women to see a part of themselves that's been hidden? Like it was always there. They just didn't see it. You know, um, what if I, you know, have a soul reveal with them and sit down and have tea and talk about their life and create a rite of passage and intention. And that then becomes something that guides them through a session and that then comes out visually in, in photographs. Mm -hmm. um, and so then that's what I did. And here we are. That is so cool. That I have like no words. I just think that is the coolest and most beautiful thing. And Y'all, you have to go follow Woke Beauty, check out her website, but you see it. Like everything that you just shared, like I'm just like scrolling through like images I have like bookmarked uh, from your page and you just see it like the way that, and I don't know how these women showed up to the photo shoots, how they were feeling. I know like how I feel when I show up to photo shoots, which is, which is typically self-critical, a little bit nervous, uncertain. I like often want to just like get it over with and then to see like the outcome and and to know that like what your I don't know what your thought process is as you craft that experience. And like, you know, you just, you, you, they really are the most beautiful photos of, of women. And I just, it's so cool. And that is such a confidence building experience, right? To have someone, you know, to get back to what you were saying before around like the, the duty of a photographer and just to know that like you specifically like show up already bought in on the idea that the, the subject, the woman in front of you is beautiful even while she may not be totally bought in on that herself and to be able to like deliver that, you know, uh, both, both metaphorically and then like quite literally in like a gorgeous photo is, is such a gift. It's such Thank a gift you. to women. Thank you. I it's been, it. it's been very fulfilling, you know, and, and that mutual exchange is, is really important. I, I sometimes have to remind people who describe what I do, that it is a business, that there is monetary exchange. And that's important because the woman is showing up for herself. She has literally invested in herself. Yeah. And, um, and therefore she's not a model. She's not a subject. I'm not taking her picture for me or for some cause I'm taking her picture for her, you yeah. know, and she did that. So, oh, I um, love that. so yeah, it's, I a, love it's that. a, it's a really neat kind of collaborative experience. I love it. Okay. So we'll, we'll wrap things up here. I could, I seriously feel like I could do this. I could do like another hour with you, but we'll, we'll respect your time and the time we have here with you today. But I'm curious, you know, you've talked with a lot of women about themselves, their bodies. So what is something that you think all women should know about their bodies? Hmm. That's such a good question. I think what they should know is that their body is um, 
simply a vessel to carry them, their spirit and their mind through life. Um, it's not here to be criticized or to be picked apart. Um, it's not here to be manipulated. It's here to literally carry you. And if you can think of your body as space that claims exterior space so that it can hold you, I think then it becomes less important. And I think that's really important because it's not important, not nearly as important as um, what lives in your brain. Totally. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love it. I love it. Well, where can people find you online if they want to connect? What's the best way for them to do that, Riley? Yeah, you've got a few options. Um, I have a personal brand, so you can find me on Instagram at Riley Blanks. And probably by the time this uh, publishes, I will have my personal website up and ready to go. Um, it'll have all of my campaigns and curated exhibitions and more, you know, personal thoughts on life, um, things that make me tick and kind of all of who I am wrapped into one. And that's RileyBlanks.com. Well, <laughs> it's, it'll be available as Riley Blanks, R-I-L-E-Y-B-L-A-N-K-S, but I I think I'm changing my name to Riley Reed. Um, So you can also find me there. Yeah, that's a whole like thing I'm trying to wrap my head around. Um, I like I'm so fascinated (laughs) with language. And so I think it would be kind of beautiful to write something about how blanks will always live in my blood. Mm -hmm. Like I I've fully embodied it. It's it's who I am. And read is something that I am um, encompassing into my life, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's my allegiance to my husband, you know, and so they stand for very different things, but they're both really important. And I think taking his name will make him really proud. And, and that's important to me as his future wife. So anyway, that was, uh, you know, me spilling more on that, but that's that. And then you can find me, um, and woke beauty at woke beauty or at wokebeauty.com. I also have a piece that I'm pretty proud of in Tribeza right now about my self portrait series manifest. And that series is also hanging on the walls at Miranda Bennett studio in East Austin. For those of you who are in Austin, I love it. How long is it up for? I don't know. <laughs> With Ongoing. COVID, we are we we talked about this recently and you know, it it was supposed to be up for a few months when it first launched um and we had our opening exhibition and then that was in, in late February. So, I think people saw it for like a week and then, you know, boom. So, um so yeah, we'll see probably for a couple months though. Good yeah. deal. All right. Well, it's a very safe activity you can go do. Go see Riley at the Miranda Bennett studio. Thank you so much for being here. This was so wonderful. Thank you for I'm so appreciative. Me. Oh my gosh. How amazing was that, y'all? I seriously think we could have talked for another hour <laughs> about this stuff. Conversations with Riley always just go such interesting places. So as I said before, if you want to check Riley out, if you want to check Woke Beauty out, I will include her information down below. And until next time, I'll see you later. 